Welcome to Not Going Quietly, the podcast where we inspire growth, beat down biases and get into all sorts of good trouble with co-hosts Jonathan Beale and Britt East. No topic is off limits as we explore ways to help everyone leap into life with a greater sense of clarity, passion, purpose and joy. So get ready to join us for some courageous conversation because Not Going Quietly starts right now. Hey everyone, welcome to Not Going Quietly, the podcast for outraged optimists and heartbroken healers all over the world, where we surface life's searing truths in the name of radical togetherness. I'm your host, Britt East. Unfortunately, my co-host, Jonathan Bill, is still on sabbatical. However, I have great news for you. We have an amazing featured guest today, and I cannot wait for you to meet him. So let's dive right in. Ted Smith is a relationship coach, number one best-selling author and certified hypnotherapy practitioner. In 2021, he published his best-selling book, Healthy Me, Happy We, Transforming Relationships with Yourself and Others. As a relationship coach, he helps people cultivate healthy relationships with other people, and most importantly, with themselves. And he guides his clients to discover, face, and release what's been blocking them from fully embracing their true selves. So please join me in welcoming Ted Smith to the broadcast. Ted, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Brett. It's good to be here. Yeah, it is so wonderful to see you. It's been it's been a long time, so it's really great to reconnect. Well, yeah. first, I want you to tell our audience about your book, Healthy Me, Happy We. Why did you write it? Who's it for? What's it about? Give us the whole spiel. Yeah, so I published the book uh, back in 2021, uh, so it was a couple of years ago, and um, I wrote that story in order to help people in their relationships because I had a lot of lessons to learn uh, for myself when it came to relationships, and so I wanted to share things with the world as kind of a, a loving guide um, so that maybe it could help people not spend as much time in unhealthy relationships as I did. Um, so I, my backstory is I spent 15 years in an unhealthy relationship, very unhealthy relationship full of codependency and abuse and addiction and, um, lots of kind of ugly stuff. And, um, I wanted to share this book because it documents not only my experience in kind of a personal narrative sort of way, but it also shares the things I've learned. So like, conceptualizing the things that I went through into like what unhealthy look, relationships look like in general. Um, and also sharing the beginning of my healing journey as well as what healthy relationships with other people do look like. It's so beautiful. You know, um, I, I got the chance to read your book when it first came out, of course, and then was rereading it to prepare for this episode and, it got me thinking about my own journey, you know, the journey that, that you share so bravely and the journeys that we've heard from other, and I'm thinking gay men in particular, just based on our lived experience. And I can't help but wonder, and this is slightly provocative, but I can't help it. Why so many of us gay men seem to expect so little from life? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's because we, um, you know, it comes down to self-worth. Um, I think a lot of the reason that gay men end up in unhealthy relationships, both as, you know, 
uh, and I'm not kind of pointing fingers here, but like there can be one person in the relationship that tends to be the abuser and the other person that's kind of the target. But as I well know from my experience, that dynamic can kind of shift on a dime, even in the midst of various conversations. So it's not like one guy's the bad guy and the other's kind of the victim. Um, but I think so much of it comes from, especially, you know, for, for gay men who were not accepted or didn't accept themselves as gay. Um, you know, that leads to a lot of challenges with, uh, substance abuse and unhealthy relationships because they're looking for something outside of them to help them feel better on the inside to help kind of seek this outside source of love and acceptance um, and happiness really um, and so that's kind of where all that comes from gay men as I'm sure we've talked about in many situations like gay men have a lot of shame um, that is there to heal. And when it's not healed yet, there are all sorts of unhealthy situations and things that gay men experience. Yeah. You know, I was struck by the dichotomy that you laid out at the beginning there, where you talked about the distinction between victim and abuser and how that can be murky and flip-flop. And I know my experience with that was really jarring. And, um, you know, I, um, when my world kind of cracked open in despair, um, it was through sex addiction. And so one of the things that I got involved in that I think saved my life was a group similar to Al-Anon, the companion program to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it's called um, COSA, Codependence Sex Addicts Anonymous. My partner at the time was a sex addict. And one of the the really you know at first after the disclosure i you get a lot of um empathy of course from your social network and then even the the shadow of that empathy can almost be this kind of um uh this this victimhood this victimization yeah and that's yeah. so tantalizing for me to wrap myself up in. And in my case, the details were kind of salacious. So it was really kind of tantalizing. And COSA, this program this similar to Alanon, was like a splash of cold water in the face, forcing me to right. look at all the ways in which I participated in the reciprocal dynamic of addiction. Yeah. And I was hoping you could talk about some of your story um, with regards to that in your relationship and focus more so less so about the other person, more so about your journey into healing and personal growth. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, it was, you know, I, so I did Al-Anon for several months at the beginning of my healing journey and my one-on-one -on -one work with my therapist was really key to unlocking a lot of things. And, um, yeah, it was definitely kind of a slap in the face because at, at that you know, for 15 years or a little less than 15 years, it was so easy for me to put all the blame on my ex for why things were bad between us. Um, and certainly he had responsibility in it for the way he treated me and the way he treated himself. But I had not woken up and realized the responsibility that I had in the relationship for enabling that behavior, for staying as long as I did. Um, 
and I didn't treat him all that great either. Um, so it was all these things that I got to wake up and realize. Um, and even, you know, it's interesting cause I, I published the book in 2021 and it's now two years later and I'm very proud of my book. I stand by it. I think it's a helpful message for a lot of people. And even still, when I like look at some of how I wrote things in the book, there was still this underlying energy of blame of him and like these little like digs at him throughout the book. And I, you know, I look at those things now, two years later and based on how I've healed and taken responsibility for myself, I look at those things and I'm like, Oh, uh, uh." I would, I would frame, I would frame things in a different way now. Um, And it's not to discount the lessons in the book because I think they're still Mm -hmm. there, but I I also think there was an opportunity for me to take greater responsibility for myself and my role in that relationship. Um, So yeah, like uh, it's, and I think this goes beyond romantic relationships too. Like, so many humans my old self included like it's so easy to put the blame for why we're not happy on the things and people outside of us whether it's our family or the stock market like all these kind of outside influences um and we don't realize that we create our reality with our own thoughts and how we show up in the world yeah, it's incredible. It's you. You got me laughing thinking about my own journey with my book too, and things I would rewrite and do differently. And it's funny how it's yeah. really just a moment in time. It's once it's printed yeah. on actual paper and it's done and set. You know, unless we're going to go back and release mm-hmm. an edition, it's like it's really reflective of a moment in time. And so it's when people stop you and like, hey, what about this? And I'm like, oh, you know, oh no. <laughs> You know, yeah. I'm a different person yeah. now, years later and, and, and all that. You know, you're, you got me thinking about the nature of forgiveness. And this is something that I think so many of us wrestle with and chase our tail around this concept of how we forgive ourselves, how we forgive each other. What does forgiveness mean? What do we get if we forgive? How is it a gift to ourselves? Could you talk some about what forgiveness has meant to you? Yeah, it's that's. It's been big. Um, Forgiveness, I think, also goes hand in hand with compassion. And that was a big part for me with my ex, Um, like learning to forgive him and have compassion instead of pity, I think was a big part of it. And for me, so I, I cut off all contact with my ex um, and have not spoken to him for four years. Um, And you know, learning how to forgive someone that I can't, that I'm, you know, choosing not to actually have that conversation with. And I think this also happens for people who are grieving the loss of a loved one. The the big thing with parents, you know, when somebody loses a parent or grandparent and, and wants to forgive them for the harm they may have caused in their life, but they can't have that conversation. Um, you know, I think it's, it's important to remember that forgiveness is for yourself first Um, and you can have that, you can experience that even if the other person isn't an active part of that. Um, and you know, it, it requires some, some deep work within yourself to get to that place. It took me a while to get there. Um, 
but when you can reach that point, it's, it's a really beautiful thing and, and such a relief. <laughs> yeah. It's, it feels like we have to, in certain ways, start with the harm. And that's, I mean, I, I just love the 12 yeah. steps. Maybe it's because it's what saved my life and my life preserver. So I've just always kind of go back to that. And, you know, the first step is, is kind of telling your story and owning that and claiming it and, and getting real. Um, and, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to kind of the spiritual bypassing that is so tempting. Oh, forgiveness is a gift I can give to myself. Let's start there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Let me go straight right. from A to Z. Let me start with the forgiveness. And like you're alluding to, it's yeah. like, it's a lot of work. That's not just a light switch that you, that you flip on and yeah. off. How long did it take you to get to this place where you could forgive your ex or has it been an evolution? It's definitely been an evolution. I wouldn't say it, it was, it's been a gradual thing. I do remember that. So I did some group therapy work in 2020. And um, so that would have been about a year after I left him and um, as part of a breath work piece. So I, I went into that group work with the intention of wanting to feel more compassion for my ex and forgiveness. Um, and I can still vividly remember there was a breath work ceremony that I took a part of and um it just kind of it kind of fell into my body where I was like stepping into a place of compassion there was a moment where I was so we're given these like 40 to 50 pound punching bags where we can kind of beat down and release anger and release whatever stress is coming up and uh I was I was releasing, oh, I might get a little emotional here. Um, I was releasing a lot of anger toward him, which, you know, a lot of that had come up in the past as well. Um, and then I realized that I, I didn't want to beat on that bag anymore. Like I, it's, it was a moment where this, like, it just kind of struck me. And, um, it was when the compassion, like finally clicked and took, took, um, it was born, I guess, if you want to say it that way. So it was a really beautiful moment. Yeah. I, I, and to your point, it's you know, an ongoing, it's an ongoing process too. Like, it's not like that was the magic light switch, but I think that was a significant step in that direction. And for me, in my experience, it's like, nobody can tell you when it's time. It's something that happens through your body. And uh, I believe yeah. that everything mm -hmm. spiritual starts with the body. So it's, it's sort of like, if the body's the antenna that somehow receives this message or divine guidance, and then you're ready and, and you move forward, whatever that means. But it's not like, you know, faking is going to get you where anywhere pretending or just deciding or anything. It's like something changed in my body with each layer, we'll call mm -hmm. it, each step in the yeah. evolution. And so I resonate a lot with what you're saying. Um, and, you know, I sort of think about the opposite also. It's like, okay, well, forgiveness is this really great gift we give to ourselves. Why are so many gay men so mean to each other? I mean, mm. we're, it's like the number one complaint yeah. I hear when, when guys come out is like, why are gay men so mean to each other? I always thought we we're going to have this brotherhood. It was going to be this permanent party yeah. and all this stuff. And it's like, whoa, I'm not sure I like this community. Yeah, well, unfortunately, <laughs> like... How people treat other people is a reflection of how they treat themselves. And so when I see gay men being catty and bitchy and making fun of people, it it hurts me to not only see how they're 
kind of put, putting that outside of them, but also I'm like, okay, so what does that look like for you behind closed doors? Like, what are your own thoughts and feelings that you're putting back onto yourself? Um, and that ties back to what I shared before around, you know, not accepting themselves for who they are and all of that. Yeah, so, our our yeah. internal monologues can be so caustic and abrasive mm-hmm. and corrosive. And, you know, like I think about that too. And it's like when you witness that behavior online or, um, you know, in, in the physical world, it's just like you can't help but think like, oh my gosh, what did the, if you're saying that to a, to a friend or a stranger, like, what do you say to yourself? Oh my gosh, it's really heartrending. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how it manifests differently for different people. So if we um, go back to the relationship with me and my ex, for the most part, I was not mean to him or abusive, but you know, I had my moments, but for the most part, like the dynamic was he would say mean things to me and kind of be in attack mode towards me. Um, when both of us in our own heads were, being abusive to ourselves. And so it's interesting how like, it doesn't always go both ways. His, his way of coping with it is to be the, um, you know, outwardly abusive person. Whereas for me, it was, it was taking it, um, and being kind of the quote unquote victim in the situation. So in my case, it's like, I, I attracted someone, um, into my life who treated me like I treated myself. Um, and in his case, he attracted someone who he could treat the way he treated himself. Um, and it's different for different people. Like, you know, there's when gay men are being catty and bitchy and all that stuff, like there's the person who is the antagonizer and the person who's receiving that. Um, and sometimes, like I said, it goes both ways and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and that's when people, you know, the opportunity is to realize, like, are you really a victim in this situation by receiving that kind of talk from someone? Or do you, what, like, what is your responsibility in this situation for taking care of yourself? That's a lot of deep stuff, Ted. <laughs> I mean, that's, wow. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. That's fantastic. You know, also, I was thinking, like, our our collective community response to the trauma of straight supremacy, whether it's growing up in the closet, whether it's being physically abused, emotionally tortured, spiritually abused, whatever it is by straight people because of our sexual orientation, our queerness, whatever, um, depending on how we identify. I wonder if if in certain relationships, often with our parents or family, if we feel we don't have the agency or we cannot afford to love ourselves in the way that you just so beautifully described, if that trauma then kind of contorts, um, warps the contours of our life and changes our response to love and and maybe creates some of the hangups that you kind of alluded to. So if I am um tortured by my family because of my sexual orientation just making an example up um and yet Mm -hmm. i perceive that i cannot afford to confront them to have a catharsis to ask them to hold 
um, the cost of their bigotry on, and the impact on my life, um, then maybe I take it on on people that I feel that I relationships that hold more trust, my children or yeah. my um, mm -hmm. coworkers or staff or my significant other or whoever that might be. And that might be kind of as we're circling the airport here of like, why are gay guys so mean? It might be that might be another. Com I mean, you laid out a lot of great components. Maybe this is another thread as well is because society in some cases has been quite cruel to us and we haven't known how or had the agency to love ourselves through that. And so it's kind of warped our sense of of forgiveness, love and and frankly, community. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of that dynamic comes from this ingrained belief that because of those outside influences, particularly when you're growing up, you know, this conclusion, I'm not worthy of love. And so, again, different people respond to that in different ways. But in some cases, in a lot of cases, there are people, and this is not just for gay men, but, you know, others as well, like, I'm going to take out that self-loathing on other people. And what that does is it further pushes people away and it, 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 um, you know, further underlines and creates that reality of I'm not worthy of love. It, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy by pushing those you care about away from you. Mm. Absolutely. I'm interested in the queer response to love. Um, you know, it's, um, I think under the best of circumstances, it can feel awkward when somebody um, looks at us with total abject love in their eyes, selfless love in their eyes. Um, it can feel mm -hmm. like, you know, bring up all sorts of stories of unworthiness, like, like you mentioned. Um, and then if we've, experience trauma, maybe we don't know how to hold that energy. And so it kind of spills over yeah. in awkward or even malicious ways. Um, and like you're saying, it's like can be this weird spiral where not only is it self-fulfilling, but things get worse over time because we become so isolated. We don't know how or are unwilling or think we cannot afford in some way to ask for help. So I yeah. guess as, um, a leader in the community, it's like, what is our responsibility, our opportunity to entice queer people to reach for help and create safe spaces for them um, without just running around and flipping on life's light switches and crossing our fingers, yeah. and, you know? Yeah. And it's a tricky thing because, and it's been part of my journey of like how I can show up as a leader and a coach in this, in this space and be that loving safe space for people and, and educate as well. But what I have found is that, you know, everybody has their own individual journey. And for a lot of people, it takes some sort of aha light bulb moment of, realizing my life is not working for me and I want to do something different. And there's only so much that outside influences can do to create that moment for someone. It really, it comes down to the own individual experience of like, 
what it's going to take for you to have that shift in wanting to create something different for you. You know, for me, it was this like blockbuster movie worthy uh, rock bottom in an ICU for a week with my ex going through alcohol withdrawal and mm. just a complete nightmare for me to wake up and realize, okay, this isn't working. Um, and what I would love for people to experience and realize is that you don't have to get to this like horrific situation to have that moment. Like there were so many opportunities I had in the previous 15 years leading up to that, where I could have said like enough is enough. And, you know, for me, it was, I, I had these kind of like, short bursts of energy of like, okay, this is enough. I am not going to do this anymore. We're going to have a conversation and things are going to change and things might change for like a week or two, but then they would be back to where they were. And I just didn't have the courage or sometimes even the awareness, um, to be like, okay, wait, like we had this conversation, things were going to change. They're not changing. We're back to where we are. Uh, and like to, to keep that momentum going forward. Um, so yeah, it's hard to answer that question because it's such an individualized experience and I wish I could, you know, tell everyone listening to this and everyone not listening to this, that they're worthy of love and that they, um, you know, they're worthy of happiness and having a good life. Um, but ultimately it's up to them to create that. Yeah. And of course, there's us who are leaders in this community. And there's many like us who are sources of support and safety to answer questions whenever the person is like, okay, I don't know what I need to do. But I know that my life is not working for me. And I want something different. Now what? I'm happy to have that conversation with anybody. Um, but you got to have the first two step, those first two statements on your own. And I can't give that to you. Yeah. Um, uh, um, you know, I, I was thinking about the first time I met you and, you know, here we are today having a cerebral conversation and kind of um, thoughtful and contemplative. But when I first met you, you were being very social with the group people. And I, I remember distinctly because you were so radiant. You had so much mm. joy and vibrancy and vitality in that specific yeah. moment, at least the way I painted in my mind years later. Who knows what you would have been. But the way that the story that I've written in my head is like, oh my God, look at this guy. He's so vital and alive and free and fun. Where did that come from? Or am I just totally in left field? I just make something up. Yeah, no, I love that you say that. Because um, I've definitely had an evolution ever since then. And uh, I can talk about that too. Um, but yeah, so you and I met, I'm assuming you mean in December at that conference, December 2019, when we met in person. Yeah. So that would have been five months after uh, I left my ex. And so I'd been wow. living alone for five months. And like, things were still very fresh. Um. But, you know, it's, I had been doing a lot of work with my new coaches at the time and still seeing a therapist and consuming all the 
self-help books I could get my hands on. Like I had really made uh, my commitment to myself a number one, like my number one priority because what I had decided is I'm never going back to that old way of being. I am going to completely shift and change my relationships with other people from the inside out, particularly romantically. Like I'm never going to have that kind of long-term partnership again. Um, and it was, you know, when we met in December, that was a few months after I had really discovered what happiness felt like for the first time in my entire life. I was 32 years old and you know, I, I had a decent childhood. I didn't have a lot of trauma. Like I had a very loving family, um, but I grew up in a small town and, you know, I was teased for being gay and I had, you know, some stuff that I went through. Um, I didn't have a lot of friends. I was very lonely as a kid. Um, so there was some pain there. And so I didn't have a lot of friends until I actually met a girl and dated a girl for four years in high school. And we had a circle of friends and I, I, I kind of finally met my tribe when, once I got to high school. Um, and, uh, but even then, like I had this underlying secret that I didn't want to tell people and that, you know, so my girlfriend and I actually like worked through some stuff with my, about my sexuality together, which involved a lot of pain and hurt wow. and kind of degrees of betrayal and all the things she and I are actually very, very good friends now and very close. Um, but at the time that was very challenging. Um, yeah. so my point in saying all that is, you know, shortly after high school, I got into that 15 year relationship. And so I had these kind of moments of what I thought was happiness, but I didn't really know what it was or what it felt like. And, Oftentimes, especially in those 15 years, moments of happiness were short-lived and often cut short with a moment's notice. Um, and so I had, I had grown to like fear being happy um, because I knew that it would be taken away from me. And then once I really started to prioritize myself and my own healing... I can still remember the moment I was out for a jog on an after random afternoon and just enjoying the freedom of I can do whatever the fuck I want, whenever the fuck I want. And I'm feeling so good in my body, like just being myself and not having to worry so much about another person. Like I can just be focused on myself. And <laughs> I think I don't know if I paused while I was jogging, but I still remember having the thought of like, Oh my God, is this what happiness feels like? Like, this is awesome. <laughs> um, and that kind of carried through like, I certainly, um, those months of like peeling back the biggest layers of codependency and, my role in that relationship, like all that stuff. Like it's not like I was all like pie in the sky, happy, joyful rainbows, unicorns, sort of like fairy tale. But I had this like consistent level of like, life is really good. And so that's the energy that you saw when you met me is that like, basically like self-discovery discovering who I was and what it meant to be happy and 
creating all these new amazing connections that I didn't know were possible. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot that went into the, the joy that you saw in my expression. That's really beautiful. Um, where I kind of missed out was like, how did you get to that moment when you were running and you felt so happy? Like, it was it like all the work with the therapist or was it the, you know, the, the forgiveness with your partner or was it just everything kind of working in concert? Yeah, I hadn't gotten to the forgiveness piece yet. That was about a year later. Um, it was all of it kind of together. So I was working with a therapist. I had joined the coaching program and, you know, consuming the self-help books. Um, and it was this, I think where it came from was this sense of freedom. Like I'm only responsible for myself and I don't have to be so consumed with worry and pain and sadness and grief about another person. Um, cause I, you know, I had started three months before I left my ex is when I started therapy and I still remember those three months and a few months after that, where 60 out of 60 minutes of my therapy sessions were spent talking about him and not about me because, you know, so you talked about sex addiction, like my addiction was to him. My addiction was on another person. You can have a relationship addiction. That's what codependency is. Um, and I I could still remember in my very first session with my therapist, she said, so just like your husband is addicted to alcohol, you were addicted to him. And I didn't know what that meant at first. Um, but I very quickly realized what she meant. Um, and even then, once I had that awareness, I would go into sessions and then, and I would sit down and I'd be like, okay, I don't want to talk about him the whole time. Like I want to talk about me. And she'd be like, okay, great. But the conversation would end up there anyway, because I had like, it, it just was this, uh, compulsion that I had of like seeing, him as my source of how I felt, whether it was happy or stressed or frustrated, whatever it was. Um, so I, you know, I had this codependent kind of rescuing mentality that if I could just make him happy or make him feel good, then I could feel good. And it took a while for me to unravel that and realize like, that's not how it works. (laughs) Um, and for me, our lives were so enmeshed and like, it became very clear that the most loving thing for me to do for not only myself, but for him too, was to leave and to cut off contact. Um, because there's, there was no way, despite my attempts to try to make things better, um, with my new awarenesses and things like that, um, you know, hit, the willingness was not on his side. And so it made the most sense and was the most loving for me to, to detach. And then once I did that, I still thought him about him a lot. Um, but it was much easier for me once he was out of my life and out of my daily awareness and, you know, what was going on for me, um, that I could finally start to like, individualize re-individualize myself um and pull apart from that very Mm. enmeshed relationship 
Yeah, we talked about the gay man, gay male response to love. It's almost like you're outlining in some ways the gay male response to trauma and homophobia and, and um, you know, it's resulted in a number of cliches, like the best little boy in the world, famous book that came out decades ago, describing a gay man's response to homophobia. Um, it can lead to outsized control issues. You know, like, oh, shit, I am this thing that is unspeakable, destined to be consigned, mm -hmm. to, you know, thrown out of society, consigned to the demimond, whatever. And it's like, I have to control yeah. this little sphere that I'm in and everybody in it. If like if they're going to come in my inner social orbit, then it's like I have to move the chess pieces around the board. Otherwise, it's overly threatening the chaos, the brutality of society is overwhelming for my nervous system. And so I cannot afford um, to let go and relinquish. And And I'm speaking from my personal experience in, in that role, maybe yeah. some of that resonates with you or not, but it's like so many of us, I think, and folks listening to this will resonate. It's a cliche for a reason among gay men where we kind of clamp down on life as a desperate attempt to gain some sort of self-empowerment because we didn't find feel mm -hmm. uh, enough agency as children, didn't feel supported and loved. There was no cultural continuity. There were no dissemination of traditions into queer culture. There was no welcoming committee. We were just kind of left to the wolves and had to invent our yeah. own worlds. And some of us, for some of us, not all, for some of us, our response was to clamp down and control. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, gay men find different areas of success. So I think that's why a lot of gay men have such strong careers, for example, because it's something that they can control. It's something that they can use their heads, their minds to apply such, you know, brilliant talents that they have, you know. Um, but a lot of times, you know, the, the professional areas that, that gay men are so successful in are very different from the relationship side. Again, whether it's romantic or friends or family or whatever, like you don't, you, for someone to have a successful, healthy relationship, it's not all going to come from the head. Like it's not something that you figure out. That's why, you know, I, I smile because there's so many gay men out there who are like, you know, millionaires because they're so good at what they do professionally but when it comes to dating they just like can't figure it out and they're not just they're just not having the success and it's because they're trying to use that those same patterns of logic and um you know figuring things out from the head versus like opening their heart because where they you know that that place of of opening your heart is something that's scary and something that in the past has been trampled on and to your point like it's it's very hard it can be very hard to um, open yourself up when the people around you are not fully loving you and accepting you it's much easier whenever you do feel loved and accepted by other people um you know for me like it was I feel like it was maybe kind of a unique experience because when I came out, it was relatively smooth. Um, but the years leading up to that of my own acceptance of myself were very, very dark. And I still like 
there's definitely, there were definitely shreds of like self-loathing and shame that stuck with me for a long time. Um, and I, I think I was expecting rejection from my family or like expecting really, I don't know that I expected explosive conversations with them, but like, I didn't expect the reception that I got. And so there was a lot of fear baked into it as well. Um, but you know, obviously my experience is very different from a lot of gay men and queer people out there whose, whose families did not accept them or, or love them for who they are. Um, and I feel like that adds a whole other layer of complexity and difficulty in, um, someone growing to love and accept themselves whenever the people around them are just kind of reinforcing what's on the inside. So I can understand why that person I met in 2019 was floating on air because it sounds like maybe you were experiencing a lot of relief, release. Yeah. Um, and so you were feeling lighter than um, you had maybe in a while. Um, where has that gone since in the intervening years? Like, how have you cultivated the sense of vibrancy and vitality in your personal life? Yeah, um, it's been an interesting ride um, because I've continued to prioritize, you know, my healing, my growth, myself. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, I have also discovered new layers of challenge for myself. And so what happens when you're on a healing journey is it's, I see it as kind of an upward spiral. And when you come back to one side of the loop, like you might be facing the same thing that you thought you had cleared and thought you had changed from, you know, months or weeks or years prior. Um, and so I've got some of that going on where like, there are still little shreds of codependency that are popping up for me that I didn't think were there. And when the awareness comes up, I'm like, holy shit, I thought I was done with that. Um, but it shows up in a new and different way. And so, you know, I get to, to look at that and, and see what to do about it, um, you know, to clear it again further. And um, it's interesting because I would say 2019, 2020, kind of heading into 21, I was, I was very happy, very joyful. And in the last couple of years, it's though, I would say those things are not the constant for me anymore. And it's because I'm, I'm going through some really deep shifts in discovering who I am. I will say that my relationships are more satisfying than ever. I'm in a long-term relationship with the guy now who we've been together for almost a year and a half, he moved in, you know, we moved in together. It's the healthiest, most thriving relationship that I've ever experienced. And, um, you know, he's done a lot of work on himself. And so that has kind of led us to be attracted to each other and to have a really healthy relationship. Um, and in my friendships, I'm showing up, you know, more powerfully and, and more of kind of who I am and setting loving, healthy boundaries. Um, I'm spending a lot more time by myself. And so mm. that has created some interesting dynamics where I used to be so social and like filling my calendar with 
lunches and dinners and parties and all the things because I, you know, I had that freedom and wanted to share my love and happiness and joy and laughter with, with everybody. And now I'm seeing the importance of slowing down and um, really cultivating a, a connection with the divine, with God and with myself. Um, and so that has created some interesting dynamics and in pulling back from how much I show up in my relationships with my friends and even with my partner. Um, and the joy and happiness piece, like, it's an interesting thing. I, I do think that I have an inner sense that I'm meant for big things in this life. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means, um, you know, being well known in the kind of self-help spiritual world, um, or if it's more like behind the scenes, I, I don't know, like, I don't know what big means in that sense. Um, but for me to get there, there's like a lot of pieces that, you know, kind of going back to that spiral, like that I continue to find are for me to look at and to heal and release. Um, and that has not always been a pretty pie in the sky, unicorns jumping over rainbows journey. It's been painful at times. It has been scary at times. Um, and, uh, there's, there's not always that kind of happy, joyful giddiness that comes with it. Um, I will say that even though a healing journey can be all those things in terms of challenge, it can simultaneously be joyful. Like you can simultaneously feel joy while you're also going through sadness and anger and grief and all the things. Um, you know, I had, uh, one of my cats that I had had for almost 17 years. Um, so he was with me through a lot in my adult adulthood um, and went, through, I mean, he was with me through almost the whole relationship with my ex and then the beginning years of my healing journey and independence. Um, and he passed away back in February and amidst crying my guts out and sadness and grief, I felt joy at the same time and gratitude that I was able to feel it so deeply. Like it was a really beautiful experience to be able to, you know, to hurt so much because I loved him so much. Um, and because he meant so much to me. Um, and, uh, a lot of people avoid feelings of pain and grief and sadness because they're so uncomfortable and, you know, not wanting to experience that. But, there's actually a lot of beauty that you can experience by allowing yourself to, to actually, um, to fully feel those things. Yeah. You know, earlier I painted a bleak portrait of, um, gay life, but you know, it's also can be thrilling. And, um, the fact that we in large part operate out of societal norms and, are relieved of society's life scripts. Um, you know, back in the day, marriage was not an option. Having kids was not an option. Um, even yeah. though those things are, are now um, definitely options in all sorts of different ways for, for gay men and queer people in general, um, lots of us choose not to um, go down those paths for all sorts of different reasons. And I was wondering, what are some ways that you love differently 
than maybe the mm. um, sitcom version of um, heteronormative love or that your clients do or that you've witnessed in the world um, as we continue to create space and take up space for queer people and gay men um, to be our true selves, not some version, you know, not just the wacky next door yeah. neighbor who adds local color to the straight person's life, but to actually be us fully complex, realized people and characters or whatever. And, yeah. and it's like, how, how are you living that? Yeah, I love that question. It's actually one of the things that I love most about the relationship with my partner is that we have co-created something that really truly aligns with what we both want and not it's not based on what societal norms are or what people think it should be or what we think it should be based on the things around us. Um, so some unique things about us is uh, we have separate bedrooms and separate bathrooms. Um, wow. We actually, so he moved in uh, in February, so five months ago. We, other oh than God, one time so we were jealous. out of town, we have not, we have not, yeah, we have not slept in the same bed for five months and it's been wow. amazing. Like we still have our, you know, yeah. we still have lots of great sex and that still very much is a thing and physical connection. But I had said, like, I, I enjoyed my independence and freedom so much for those few years of my healing journey that I was like, I don't even know if I want to live with anybody again. Like, I loved yeah. it so because that was the first time I'd ever lived alone. I went from mm. my parents' home to the college dorm to living with my Whoa. ex-husband. So I didn't live alone till I was 32. And then whenever Whoa. I did, I'm like, this is this is fucking awesome. Like <laughs> um so, you know, when the idea of us living together came up, I was like, okay, checking in with myself, like, okay, how do I feel about this? Cause I don't want to do it just out of convenience or you know, because it's the next step, like forcing that on us. Um, and what I saw was like, okay, so as long as we can have separate beds, I think that's all I really need. And um, in addition to what's important for both of us is having a good amount of time solo. So we actually have separate living spaces as well um, with separate like TVs and, you know, comfortable couches and whatever that whenever we want to, when we want a solo night or a solo afternoon on a Sunday, um, we can do that. And there's no like judgment or pressure from the other person. Like, um, that's, that's the me time. That's the recharge time. And then, you know, we'll come back together either later that day or the next day or whenever it is. Um, and, uh, I have found that spending a, a time apart, as I talked about before around like me needing a lot of time to myself, uh, has been really good for both of us. Um, other unique things, we, we do have an open relationship and for us that works, you know, part of, part of what I discovered on my years being kind of out on my own was I, I really embraced the idea of fluidity in relationships and not like meeting someone and like promising forever to them because what I would say is like, I don't even know where my life's going to be in six months from now, let alone 60 years. So like, how can I promise that we're going to be together forever? And that's not to say that, you know, when challenges come up, we're not going to work through them. I'm not going to just bail at this, the sign of the first 
uh, challenge. Um, but, you know, because I am on such a, a committed path to growth and like discovering my true self, I, I still don't know if he and I are going to be a good match, like aligned in that way forever. Um, and so that's another piece for us is, um, you know, like I, I don't expect us to get married um, because, because of that, like to having that kind of openness to whatever life brings us and not kind of constricting ourselves to a forever that we, we don't know how that's going to unfold. Um, mm. And the open relationship piece has been really great too, because it, it has allowed us a, a sense of freedom to just explore other relationships with other with curiosity. And sometimes that includes a sexual component and sometimes it doesn't. Um, we actually like, so neither it's, even though we have an open relationship, it's been monogamous for the last almost a year now. Um, just because I haven't really had much of a desire to explore elsewhere. Um, but to have that freedom is helpful. Like, cause it doesn't, it does, there's not this like tunnel vision of it has to be just us. Um, there's more flexibility with it. Oh, that is such a beautiful um, portrait that you paint. You had me at separate bathrooms. I'm like, is that legal? I didn't even <laughs> know that was, I thought that was against the law. Amazing. How did you need to highly recommend? Yeah, no, it's amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. I think it, I've, been, I've been married for 14 years and I'm like, oh my God, separate bathrooms. Why did I never think of this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I highly recommend. It's pretty great. Although, what are you so free and liberated? You've got separate bathrooms, <laughs> separate bedrooms, and stuff. That's so awesome. You're like, I mean, that's what the whole point is. It's like if we're going to live by these contrived norms thoughtlessly, for some of us, they might be authentic and, you know, aligned with who we really are. But if we're just going to do it reflexively, thoughtlessly, what's the, even the point of being gay then? It's like the whole yeah. point is that we get to, you know, that's the whole upside is like we're, we're unencumbered. We're unbothered. It's like, you know, we get to make our rules and paint with so many more colors. When you yeah. think about especially the straight man box, the guy code that these poor guys live with, it's just mm -hmm. so bleak and so sad and overwhelming. Yeah. And that's like, you know, yes, we, we endure a lot as as queer people and gay men but um at least we don't got that at least i don't have to deal with that yeah. crap. you know it's like i can i can do whatever i want <laughs> yeah and that's the opportunity like that's what i said like one of my favorite things about a relationship is being that example of you can do whatever you want like if if you truly want to get married and have kids and have the white picket fence and that is like in your heart and gut like that's what that's what is right for me then do that and enjoy yeah. it and like you know, more power to you, but don't do those things. If it's not really what you want, I see mm -hmm. so much like subconscious limitation in people that like, they don't want to admit that that's not the life I want, but I'm going to have to, I'm, that's what you do. So that's just what I'm going to do. Like kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, just, yeah, that kind of 
unconscious choice. Um, and like, I just, I want, I would love to provide an example to help people to open their eyes, open their horizons and expand that just yeah. a little bit to see has like society exact yeah. society exacted a cost from, for you, from you living this way. Do, do you deal with like people like, um, getting upset that this is how you live and that you're so that you get separate bathrooms and getting infuriated with all your bathrooms? <laughs> No, I've not really gotten pushback. Um, and yeah, I don't know if that's, you know, having rainbow hair, which you can kind of sort of see yeah. is yeah. another just like kind of light example of like, you know, make your hair color, whatever you want. Like who cares? Right. And all these exactly. like professional standards around that, around like you have to look a certain way, um, all that kind of bullshit. Uh, and it's like, I think the more you own your decisions and don't really care what other people think the less you're probably going to even get pushback from people on your decisions um and then when they do if they do it's gonna impact you less if at all um by having to explain yourself like you don't have to explain yourself just own your life yeah water off a duck's back in a way it's like you know yeah when you don't seek people's permission they tend to kind of keep their judgments to themselves and in, in a lot of senses yeah. unless they're really acting out they kind of keep that stuff for themselves or if they do it's like it's almost amusing in a way you're like sometimes i feel like mm -hmm. because i've been gay a long time sometimes i feel like when i encounter prejudice it's actually kind of amusing it's like really that's yeah that's what you think or that's what you're coming to me with i'm like i cannot be bothered <laughs> yeah it's such a limited way of thinking that um it's kind of sad like i it's hard for me not to judge those things because i the way i see those comments and those opinions is it's a limitation it's a limited belief about the world and the people around you and like if you can just open your mind like there's so much more available to you um so preaching to the choir i know yeah yeah the whole auntie mame aunt mame quote um lights of the fame most of us are starving to death that's what i was thinking of there, yeah when you're talking yeah. so well ted you're definitely not starving to death it's been such a joy to talk with you today and catch up and and um see you thriving and vibrant and vital and, and alive and modeling that for others and um, I hope everybody reads your book, Help, you know, um, Healthy Me, Happy We. It's uh, it's fantastic. And it's, um, you know, I think you're really going to change a lot of lives. We'll put, of course, links to all of Ted's socials in the show notes and a link to his Amazon where you can buy the, the book really easily. That way you don't have to jot anything down on the fly. Um, so make sure you stop by the show notes um, for all of that. Ted, thank you for joining the podcast today. It was so wonderful to see you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. It's been great to be here. Absolutely. All right, everyone, you have done it. You have made it through yet another hour of Not Going Quietly. We thank you so much. We could not do this show without you. Um, not Going Quietly is the podcast for heartbroken healers and outright optimists all over the world where we surface life-searing truths in the name of radical togetherness. I hope you enjoyed this hour. We really love you. We mean it. And take care. Have a great day. Bye. You've been listening to Not Going Quietly with co-hosts Jonathan Beal and Britt East. 
Thanks so much for joining us on this wild ride as we explore ways to help everyone leap into life with a greater sense of clarity, passion, purpose, and joy. Check out our show notes for links, additional information, and episodes located on your favorite podcast platforms.